This week's edition of Big Talk is the second part of our conversation with university administrator, diversity pioneer, and advocate for historic black colleges and universities, Charlie Nelms. Charlie began his university leadership career in the late 1970s in the Indiana University system and subsequently went to different locales and colleges as a top-level administrator. He came to Bloomington in 1998 when IU brought him back as Vice President of Institutional Development and Student Affairs. We'll pick up his story there after some introductory words with Charlie. Hi, this is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, Charlie Nelms, a man who has been here at Indiana for too many years to count, I'll bet, huh, Charlie? Quite a few. Quite a few. Charlie Nelms, a higher education consultant now, has been in many locales a university administrator, a diversity pioneer. Uh, Charlie was here in Bloomington and around the state, too, when the university started thinking about, hey, we've got to think about our student body as a diverse body. Correct. That was something that, that had to develop. It wasn't always there. No, it didn't just fall out of a box. No one delivered it on a great slate of, uh, of a slate and say, this is what thou shalt do. I mean, you know, it had to be something that was imagined, okay? And you not only, you just can't imagine it into existence. You have to work to make it a case. And then once it's there, you have to nurture it and, and keep it going. Charlie, your history is fascinating because you were alive at times that we can, the people of this new generation sure. who are alive, I wonder if they can believe that there was Jim Crow laws when you were alive. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I attended, I, I went to a school once for Black History Month, a little elementary school in Richmond, Indiana, and a little girl at the end, she raised a hand, Charlie, and she said, yes, what is it? She said, were well, you a slave? <laughs> wow. And and I said, no, but it made for a wonderful teaching moment to talk yeah. about slavery, yeah. okay, uh, then, but also talk about people being slave to things now. Right. Yeah. And uh, much of Jim Crow, much of uh, 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 the history post-Civil War was slavery by another name. Absolutely. Now, you were born in Arkansas. You were one of 11 kids, a family of subsistence farmers. Yes, absolutely. 11, I'm number five in the birth order. And as I say to people, we had a football team, and uh, <laughs> seven of the 11 are still alive, and I'm the oldest of the living uh, siblings now. Um, but I had these wonderful parents, uh, and I started working when I was five years old, as did all farm kids, because we all had jobs to do. Your parents conveyed to you a very important message. Absolutely. And that message was simply this. You can be anything you want to be. Now, I'm not sure mom and papa knew what anything was. Yeah. They didn't have to define it, but they said you can be anything you want to be. And so I grabbed onto that, as did my siblings. And, uh, and we believe that, and that's the message that I try to convey in the book, and that's the message that I try to convey as I interact with uh, young people as well as people that I mentor. Now, you mentioned the book. Uh, that's been released uh, in 2019 by Indiana University Press. That's From Cotton Fields to University Leadership, 
Uh, all eyes on Charlie Nelms. Sure, sure. Whose eyes were on Charlie Nelms well, specifically? Well, specifically, Michael, the people who nurtured my dreams. Yeah. Uh, they were the teachers in the little Rosenwald School. They were my parents. They were the people who uh, were members of Shallow Missionary Baptist Church on the, Shall- on the Buck Lake Road. And, and by the way, the term all eyes on Charlie, that is this whole notion of double consciousness that grew out of the work of W.E.B. Du Bois. Huh. And Du Bois talked about the fact that we straddle two worlds as black people. There are yeah. these expectations from your own people, but there are also expectations from Caucasians or white people. And so you have to walk that balance. But that whole notion, all eyes on Charlie, meaning everyone had some watchful eyes to see what would happen to you. And it's like a tug of war, maybe. Absolutely. The expectations. Absolutely. There's this expectation and Absolutely. there's that expectation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Was that tough? Oh, yeah. And tell me how tough. It was tough and it continues to be tough. You know, it's one thing for us to think about, well, that was then and this is now. But yeah. I think... Everything's fine now. That's right. Yeah. No, not everything isn't fine right. now. But, you know, one of the things that if you focus on the future... Okay, and what you think you are capable of becoming, then you don't get caught up into what what you are then. Yeah, okay? yeah. You are more, okay, than you are now. We're all capable of being more than what we are now, and so that's the that's the whole notion behind uh, behind it. And so I did not focus a lot on. I mean, the circumstances were what they were. I mean, it was legalized apartheid. Yeah, that's what it was. Of course, call it by any other name. We can call it segregation. We can call it uh, what uh, you know, lack of integration. But it was basically legalized kind of apartheid American style. There were institutionalized processes uh, in my hometown in Chicago. Sure. There was blockbusting and sure. redlining sure. and all the rest and the refusal of sure. banks to yeah. lend to black Absolutely. people. Absolutely, Absolutely. just. Keep them where yeah, they absolutely. keep them where they should absolutely. be. Absolutely, and you know when Dr. King, you know during the during the uh, civil rights era, Dr. Yeah. King I- experienced some of his most uh, uh, racist and violent acts right. in the North. Right. Okay, that's not to excuse the people in the North in the South. Right. I'm not saying that, but by the time he got to Illinois, Chicago area, Cicero, all of those areas. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he was met with violent kind of uh, kind of uh, force and that kind of thing. So, got hit in the head with a brick Absolutely. in Marquette Park. Absolutely. So, yeah, uh, fell to his knees, yeah. bloody. But it, it, the point, though, it's really important for people to understand history. Yeah. Okay? And in this, in this era of social media, we can be seduced into thinking that things are a lot, so much better. Okay? Yeah. Or that era used to be the case. Okay? But you look at the voter suppression efforts in this country. Absolutely. Right now. Yeah. Voter suppression right now. Hundreds of thousands. That's right. Being disenfranchised. Yeah. You know, there's an African proverb who says that leaders will plant trees whose shade they will never enjoy. You then came sure. back to Indiana University, Bloomington. Sure. Mm-hmm. This is going on about this is about twenty years ago. That's right, absolutely twenty twenty years ago. Vice President of Institutional Development. Again, the reason for the title of this book, mm-hmm. "From Cotton Fields to University mm-hmm. Leadership." That's right. You've been in it's almost countless positions of leadership. Well, at university, I have, I have, and and I consider that to be a real uh, blessing, really. And, and it's not luck. I don't believe in luck. You know, <laughs> that's why I don't play the lottery. You know what <laughs> I mean? You know, I can't imagine people gambling their way into prosperity. But that's something that we sell. But that's another story for uh, a story for another day. Right. So, so what brought me to Indiana University? 
there was a protest in about uh, 1996-97 led by the Student Coalition, African American, um, uh, LBGTQ, uh, Asians, uh, etc. All the people who are outside of the majority. That's right. Okay. And so that led then to an enormous amount of criticism on the part of students, and it was a lot of media, national media attention in the Chronicle of Higher Education and that kind of thing. And so I was at the University of Michigan at Flint and got a call from my dear friend and mentor, Ken Gross Lewis, the late Ken Gross Lewis. And he explained to me some of what was going on here and wondered if I would come and have a conversation with, uh, with him and, uh, and with uh, Miles Brand. And I did. In other words, they wanted to pick your brain? Well, we wanted to pick my brain, but also talk about the possibility of my returning to Indiana University. They were hoping to recruit And uh, so that resulted then in my coming back to Indiana University. So Indiana University was one of the first major universities in America to have a vice president who had diversity and equity as a major part of the portfolio. But my portfolio was not just diversity. It was also the university's honors college. It was institutional research planning and analysis. It was some responsibility working with regional campuses. Okay, They they didn't keep you solely in a box. No, and I refused to accept a position where I would be solely in a box. Right. Okay. He's our guy for black things. That's right. No. Okay. I understand, appreciate, and, and value that. I'm committed to it. Um, But... But if you allow yourself to just be marginalized in a particular kind of way, okay, then you get saddled with the responsibility, okay, for creating the change in that particular area when, in fact, you're not hiring all of the people. So you got to have these partnerships and these relationships and accountability and all of that in the dean's office, in the provost office, and all of the vice presidents collectively. And so that's that's the message that I brought. That's the agenda that I pushed. And I work then to have collaborators as opposed to a single solo actor. So people to help. That's right. It's, it's a group effort. That's right. It's a group. It's a collective effort. It was then and it will forever be. And that's it, the nature of yeah, humanity. That's right. And you got to invest some money, too. You can't yeah. just talk it into existence. And so I think over the years, I mean, there would be areas where you would hope for greater investments. But I must say... And I've been close to Indiana University for a long time, okay? And I would say that the investments that have been made are ones that that would rival the investments that have been made by many other major universities around the country, including those in the Big Ten. And I say that with uh, with a lot of pride uh, because I knew Herman Hudson. I knew... I knew these people, okay, and I know the people who are in leadership positions now, and, and, and I found them to be... Um, genuinely committed to trying to make a difference. Now, are there things I want to see more of? Yes, okay. Uh, more black faculty, more black staff, um, more administrative black students. students. I mean, yeah, so, so but, but again, what we have to do is to keep focusing on how to make that happen as opposed to lamenting the fact that it's right. not in place. Yeah. right. It's good to be alive and to have been, you know, alive during this era when I have been. So my relationship with Indiana University is a 50-year relationship. Well, then it looks like you sort of finished up your university leadership sure. career. Sure. 
with a five-year stint mm -hmm. as the chancellor of North Carolina Central University. Mm -hmm. That was and is an HBCU, which is an historic, historic black college and university. That is correct. Why are there historic black colleges and universities? They're there for several, several reasons. One, they still educate and prepare a disproportionate number of black and brown people who go on to earn PhDs, JDs, MDs, disproportionately. They enroll about 3% of black students nationally mm. and end up preparing about 17 to 21% who go on and get PhDs. So that's a disproportionate kind of impact. So, so the need is still there, okay? Yeah. Because when you look at the STEM disciplines, okay, yeah. they're not graduating in large numbers from major research universities. They're coming out of the Florida A&Ms. They're coming out of the North Carolina A&Ts, the Howard, Howard University in Washington, D.C., Morgan State, Tennessee State, okay? And so those institutions are still playing a very important role, okay, in the education of Americans, of all ethnicities who go on to do research and so on and so forth. So that's number one. Secondly, it's a matter of choice. Yeah. Okay. Uh, one of the things that when I, and I wanted to go to an HBCU as chancellor, finish my career there because I wanted to see if I could take the things that I had learned and the experiences that I'd had at predominantly white universities and apply them to those HBCUs to improve them, to make them better. Okay. So if I could take all of what I'd learned over a 40 year period, and see, so if I can take that, not to try to dump it and impose it on them, right. but if I could take the best of what I'd learned and invest it in an HBCU, and that was my motivation for wanting to do that. But HBCUs are also about choice. Yeah. Okay? In other words, you see, <clears throat> at an HBCU, a student doesn't have to worry about the imposter syndrome. Okay, And one of the things that we're seeing in predominantly white universities is this whole notion of imposter syndrome where faculty members don't feel quite that they belong there. Yeah. Students don't feel quite that they belong there, even no though they're. Yeah. So that is a big issue. And so this whole notion of being in, a, in an environment where your, comp, where your culture is celebrated as opposed to celebrated as opposed to simply uh, tolerated. So every day at an HBC was Black History Month for me. <laughs> I didn't have beautiful. to wait for February. <laughs> hey, one of the things you did uh -huh. at North Carolina Central University, you established mm -hmm. or helped sure. establish the first Ph.D. program there in 50 years. That's right. There hadn't been one. That's right. Had not been one. And you know what it was in? It was in a STEM discipline. Okay, and it's very important science, technology, math, that whole area. Yeah. Um, and, and so, in the research triangle area, okay, you have a lot of the large pharmaceutical companies and so on and so forth. And so, we were the nearest university to the research triangle park area. Oh. And so, we had partnerships then with uh, the big pharmaceutical companies, with the EPA, so the number of, of entities located there. So, we wanted to capitalize on that, but also wanted to be involved in helping to increase the number of, and the, the term people of color, I have difficulty with it, because I think what you want to do in this particular case, we were trying to increase the number of black and brown and historically disenfranchised people in the, in the STEM disciplines is what we were trying to do. And, um, and I think we, we, we made some good progress in terms of getting it started. But getting something started and keeping it going is really two different, uh, two different things. Yeah. 
Now, you retired in 2012. Happens that in sure. 2012, a wonderful thing mm -hmm. occurred. You were awarded the MLK Drum Major for Service Award sure. by none other than a fellow sure. named Barack Obama. Sure, yeah. Yeah. That must have been exciting. It was exciting. It was exciting. One of the things that I say, and you know, in the course of my, my long career, I had a chance to meet, I think, about five, at least five uh, U.S. presidents, um, the Dalai Lama, uh, the Muhammad Ali's of the world, John Lewis. I mean, I've had a chance to meet some really, really fascinating, yeah. interesting kind yeah. of people. And uh, so meeting President Titans. Obama, yes, they really were. Uh, and are. Uh, so I had a chance to, um, and I did not set out to try to win a drum major award. You know, there was, there was work to be done. And my, my question is, what's my role in helping to address those issues? Now, we're about to come up on Martin Luther King's dream. And yeah. everybody keeps talking about Dr. King's dream. And I think it's important for us to understand it. But here's the question. What's your dream? What's your dream? What's my dream? What's the people listening to uh, us? What are our individual and collective dreams? Yeah. And what are we doing to make our dreams and King's dream align and make them a reality? Because, see, a dream without, <laughs> without focusing and work simply is an illusion. It becomes, right. quickly becomes, it, it evolves into, a poof, that's an all idea. it is. Okay? Yeah. The MLK Drum Major Award was really a recognition of a continuous, lifelong effort. Okay, to try to make the world a better place. And you've done so. I've tried my you best. You feel good about that. I feel good about it. I feel good about it. There's and more to go, uh, though, right? Yeah, there's with more. You, to, yeah, there's more. Personally. Yeah, there's more to go with me personally. But here's what my mama said. She said, do your best. My parents never said to us, you have to make all A's or right. you have to make all B's. My mama said, do your best. And when our son got ready to go off to college, I said to him, Rashad, do your best. But I know your best is better than a C. <laughs> so, you put a condition on it. Yeah, I put a it. condition <laughs> on it, okay? But, uh, but just if, if we do our best, and most of us fall short, including me, of doing our very best, we do a fraction of what we're capable of doing. Right. There's but always more. There's always more. Both personally and as a nation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. As a species. That's right. Okay. And, uh, so, and I believe that I don't think that there are any problems that can't be solved. I think if we put our minds to it and if we work collaboratively and we work persistently and we work strategically, we can address those issues, whether it be climate change, whether it be the immigration issues, whether they be gender issues. whether they, We can solve those problems. Okay. Hope so. But we can't we can't tweet it into existence. In other words, we have to be able to have a fellowship. We have to have We're a good dialogue. talkers. We, we, yeah. Or, okay. or typers. Yeah. Okay. Good yeah. type. Better typers than we are doers. <laughs> but but anyway, so there's something for all of us uh, to do. The work is not fine, done. So what are you doing now? What I'm doing now every day when I get up, I go to the gym. I always read at least a couple of newspapers. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, I try to think about um, uh, something having to do with improving uh, the state of, uh, of historically black colleges and universities because I do consulting work on governance and executive leadership and coaching and that kind of thing. Um, um, 
And so I have conversations with my protégés who are scattered all around the country about their aspirations, or I may be getting ready to go and do uh, something for college university, as I am with Dillard University uh, coming up later this week mm-hmm. with their board of trustees and saying, how can you become a better, more effective, responsive board of trustees to ensure the long-term uh, uh, sustainability of the institution as opposed to simply you know, struggling and thriving? You know, you need to thrive. And here's what we need to do to make sure that you thrive. So to answer your question, so every day is a good day, and my objective is to try to make it an excellent day. Now, for those who are interested in what Charlie Nelms is doing professionally at this time, uh, go on over to Mm charlienelms.com. Learn a little bit about your business and what's going on and a little bit about your history. Of course. Boy, your history is all over the internet, for goodness sakes. Well, I don't know about all of that. I don't <laughs> know about that, Michael. But uh, but again, you know, um, you know, I have fun. You know, I enjoy life, and um, and um, I don't think it comes ready made. We tailor it to, you know, take advantage of of our um, interests and our skills, and you move forward. And I don't I don't go to bed at night worrying about what I didn't do today. You've been on this earth for sure. a certain few years. Yeah, a few years, yeah, yeah, yeah. What would you redo? What would I redo? Oh, my goodness. Have more children. Really? Yeah. We have one. We, I mean, that's one thing that, you know, you end up going to school. You know, my wife and I were in graduate school, and we did all of these things, and we moved and all of that. And you may say, well, Charlie, what would you? So more children, whether they would be biological or adopted children, but mm. more children. Um, because I think that's how we ensure the strengthening and the sustainability of, of, of this place we call planet Earth and try to make sure that those young people have the right kinds of values and uh, use it. And, and we can't live our lives vicariously always through our children. Yeah. But I really do think that children are, are very much a part of the future of this universe of ours. Yeah. And uh, so that's one thing I would do differently. I wouldn't move as much. That's the, that's the other thing, too. Um, you know, I came along at a time when, you know, in order to take advantage of opportunities, you needed to move. And if you were an African-American person, there were some communities that were more receptive and more supportive of of your work than others. And uh, so so I moved quite a bit. I would move less, okay? And the other thing I do, I take more vacations, yeah. You didn't do that enough. I didn't do it enough. Um, I, I was always working, and I must say I'm a bit of a workaholic, but I was a runner. I was a marathon runner, so oh. I, I ran a lot of marathon runners, uh, races. and um, But anyway, so I don't want to come across as sounding as though I've had a terrible life. I've had a wonderful life, man. I have a wonderful life, you know? And uh, Well, I don't know so, how anybody yeah, could get yeah, the idea that you yeah. think you've had a terrible no, no, life I, because yeah, you're such a, sure. a positive sure. Sure. individual. Yeah. I have to be. I mean, there are too many things to get depressed about. There are. You know, and to be pessimistic about, you know. Um, but it's in you sure. to look sure. up rather than Absolutely. down. Absolutely. And I think we have a choice. And that comes from your mom and yeah, dad. It comes from my mom and my papa. Yeah. And Reverend George Mitchell at Shallow Missionary Baptist Church. 
okay? And I don't go to a Baptist church anymore. There's nothing wrong with it. So I'm, 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 a, I'm a spiritualist as opposed to a denominationalist, but that's, that a, that's another whole story. But, but the whole thing is, the point I'm trying to make is, is that it's really important for you to be grounded in certain principles and certain values. And that grounding for me occurred in the Arkansas Delta, okay? Um, it occurred for me in the Arkansas Delta. And, um, and I think... So I have this saying is that without a permanent fuel source, your light will go out. And so I've tried to be connected to something bigger than myself. When's the last time you went back to the farm? Oh, I was there in August. You mm-hmm. were? Yeah, I was there in August. And so my family, uh, we've had a family reunion on my maternal side for 60, since 1952. Uh-huh. Yeah, every year, annually since 1952. Okay, so I go back to Arkansas. We still have my parents' uh, forty-acre farm. Still have my grandmother's eighty-acre farm. Really? And uh, yeah, the houses are no longer there, and we rent the land to the nearby farmer, joining farmer, because with forty acres and eighty acres, you know, that's that's barely a garden spot anymore. Really? <laughs> you know, because you have these mega farms, you know, with thousands and thousands of acres. What's and, grown there now? Cotton, cotton, still and so- cotton, co- cotton and soybeans. Yeah, and soybeans, and soybeans which beans. yeah, yeah. makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, uh, so I get back to Arkansas frequently. Um, uh, All of my siblings now, except one, reside in Memphis, Tennessee, because if you were seeking an opportunity, you know, you hop across the river. So Arkansas, eastern Arkansas is just right across the river from Memphis. Right. And uh, so, you know, you wanted to go to the big city and looking for opportunities, getting away from the farm, Memphis was the place that you ended up going. That was the center of the world. That was the center of the world. It just as well been Los Angeles for us. Yeah. Yeah. What a life. Yeah. Charlie Nelms, and uh, I'm not being disrespectful sure, when sure. I call him Charlie. No, you're Charlie. I am Charlie. My name is re- my given name is Charlie. C H A R L I E. I have no middle initial. Okay, and I do not go by the tag Doctor. Okay, because uh, my name is Charlie. I have a degree, but my name is Charlie. You have okay. a doctorate. I have a doctorate, but my name is Charlie. But you don't want to be called doctor. No, I don't need to be reminded of it. Well, I mean, what good does it do to be reminded of that? Well, some people might be insecure. Well, I'm not insecure, so I don't need that reminder. <laughs> I worked at a, I worked, so, so August Eberly, my major professor at Indiana, said to us, he said, look, two things. He said, don't put your degree on in front of your name because you can't heal anybody anyway. It was a kind of tongue and cheek kind of thing. But, you know, so I took that to heart. And then the second thing is I worked at a little Quaker school called Earlham College in Richmond, Indiana. Uh Okay. Where everyone was on a first name basis. Yeah. And yet they respected and we respected each other profoundly. And it didn't matter whether you drove the lawn, you did lawnmower or whether you worked in the cafeteria, or whether you cleaned the residence halls, or whether you were in the president's office. Landrum Bolin was Landrum. Joe Elmore was Joe. Lucky Robinson winning, Lynette Robinson winning, was lucky to us. <laughs> okay, so, but, so I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that, you know. So I'm secure enough to know that I don't need to, and, and, and I understand people who make the opposite argument. Yeah. I'm just not one of those people with that need. Right. Mm-hmm. Charlie's world is a good world. Yeah, mine is, has been, and I think it'll continue to be. Charlie Nelms, a higher education consultant, a longtime university administrator, a diversity pioneer. 
Thanks for being on Big Talk, Charlie. It was great having you. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Listen to parts one and two of our conversation with Charlie Nelms at WFHB.org. Click on the News and Public Affairs tab and select Big Talk for an archive of all our editions.